Chapter Twenty of Marjorie Dean, High School Sophomore by Pauline Lester. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ashley Jane. Chapter Twenty Hoisting the Flag of Truce. Thanksgiving Day walked in amid a flurry of snow, accompanied by a boisterous wind, which roared a bleak reminiscence of that first Thanksgiving Day on a storm-rock-bound coast, when a few faithful souls had braved his fury and gone forth to give thanks for life and liberty. Despite his challenging roar, the boys of Western High School played their usual game of football against a neighbouring eleven and emerged from the field of conquest, battered and victorious, to rest in the proud bosoms of their families and devour much turkey. In the afternoon the long-talked-of game of basketball came off between the sophomores and the freshmen it was an occasion of energetic colour flaunting in which black and scarlet banners predominated it seemed as though almost everyone in sanford high with the exception of the freshmen themselves was devoted heart and soul to the sophomores the rumour of the unfair treatment they had received in the deciding practice game had been noised abroad and marjorie and her teammates were in a fair way to be lionised a packed gallery, much jubilant singing and frantic applause of every move they made, spurred the black and scarlet girls to doughty deeds. And although it was a hard-fought battle in which the freshmen played for dear life, the sophomores won. Altogether, it was a day to be remembered, and Marjorie lived it for all that lay within her energetic young body and mind only the one flaw that marred its perfection and left her sober-eyed and retrospective when the eventful holiday was ended she felt that one word of commendation from mary would have been worth more than all the praise she had received from admiring friends but mary was as stony and implacable as ever giving no sign of the surrender which constant stevens had unconsciously nipped in the bud just how Mary spent that particular Thanksgiving day, Marjorie did not learn until long afterward. She knew only that Mary had left the house directly after dinner, merely stating that she intended making several calls, and was seen no more until ten o'clock that night, when she flitted into the house like a ghost and vanished up the stairs to her own room. After Thanksgiving, basketball echoes died out in the growing murmur of coming Christmas joys, and like every young girl, Marjorie grew impatient and enthusiastic over her holiday plans. She did not chatter them as freely to General and Captain when at table as had been her custom each year in the happy days when only they three had been together. As her formerly lovable self, Marjorie would have felt no reserve in Mary's presence. But this strange new Mary, with her white immobile face and indifferent eyes, chilled her, and killed her desire to exchange the usual gay badinage with her general, which had always made mealtime a merry occasion. I don't like Mary's effect on our little girl, Margaret. Of late Marjorie is as solemn as a judge. 
remarked Mr. Dean one evening as he lingered at the dinner table after Mary and Marjorie had excused themselves and gone upstairs on the plea of studying tomorrow's lessons. I counselled Marjorie the night I took her to Devon Inn to dinner to let matters work out in their own way. That was some time ago. Perhaps I'd better take a hand and see what I can do toward ending this internal war. Christmas will soon be here. We can't have our day of days spoiled by one youngster's perversity. I have thought of that too, returned Mrs. Dean, smiling. And I have a plan. I shall need your help to carry it out, though. When she had finished the laying out of her clever scheme for a congenial Christmas all around, Mr. Dean threw back his head in a hearty laugh. "'It's decidedly ingenious and in keeping,' was his tribute. "'I'll help you put it through with pleasure.' "'But after Christmas,' he paused, his laughing eyes growing grave. "'After Christmas our services as peace advocates may not be needed.' supplemented Mrs. Dean. At least I hope they may not. I am still of the opinion, however, that Mary must be left to repent of her own folly. If she is coaxed and wheedled into good humour, she will never realise how badly she has behaved. I suppose that is so, but naturally I am more interested in healing our poor little soldier's hurts than in trying to bring a certain stubborn young person to her senses. We will try out our idea. It will ensure one satisfactory day, I hope, unless I prove a poor diplomat. Although Marjorie's blithe voice was too frequently stilled in Mary's presence, she was uniformly sunny when she and her captain were alone together. Now fairly familiar with Sanford, Mrs. Dean had made it part of her daily life to seek and assist certain families among the poor of the little northern city. Now that Christmas was so near, she was making a special effort to gladden the hearts of those to whom life had seemed to grudge even daily bread. She had contrived wisely to interest Marjorie in this charitable work with the idea of taking her mind from the bitter disappointment Mary's change of heart had brought her and had been touched and gratified at the unselfish eagerness with which Marjorie had taken up the work. The latter had aroused Jerry Mace's as well as Constance Stevens's interest in planning a Merry Christmas for the poor of Sanford. Constance was particularly desirous of helping. She would never forget the previous Christmas Eve, when, laden with goodwill and beribboned offerings, Marjorie had smilingly appeared at the little grey house where poverty reigned supreme and helped her transform Charlie's rickety express wagon into a veritable fairy couch, piled high with the precious tokens of unselfish love. She felt that the only way in which she might show her lasting gratitude for the gifts of that snowy Christmas Eve was to share her blessings with others who were in need, and she quickly became Marjorie's most faithful servitor. Good-natured Jerry was also keen to bestow her time and wild goods in the Christmas cause, and almost every afternoon when school was over the three girls conspired together in the cause of happiness. 
Marjorie unearthed a trunk of her childish toys from an obscure corner of the garret, and a great mending and refurbishing movement ensued. Jerry, not to be outdone, canvassed among her friends for suitable gifts to lay at the shrine of Christmas, which rose to life eternal when three wise men placed their reverent offerings at the feet of a holy child long centuries before. While Constance Stevens drew largely on a sum of money, which her indulgent aunt had placed in the bank to her credit and enjoyed to the full the blessedness of giving. "'Maybe we haven't been busy little helpers, though,' declared Jerry Macy one blustering afternoon as the three girls sat in the Deans's living room, surrounded by ribbon-bound packages of all shapes and sizes. "'Truly, I never had such a good time before in all my life.' "'That's just the way I feel,' nodded Constance, as she tied an astounding bow of red ribosine about an oblong package that suggested a doll and consulted a fat notebook, lying widespread on the library table, for the address of the prospective possessor. "'Marjorie, will you ever forget how happy Charlie was last year?' Dear little Charlie, Marjorie's lips smiled tender reminiscence of the tiny boy's jubilation over his wonderful discovery that Santa Claus had not forgotten him. His Christmas will be a merry one this year, even to the good strong leg that he hoped Santa would bring him. He can't possibly be any happier than he was last Christmas, was Constance's soft reply. And it was all through you, Marjorie. "'Oh, I wasn't the only one. "'Your father and you and Uncle John gave him things, "'and Delia popped the corn for his tree. "'And don't you remember, Laurie Armitage brought you the tree "'and the holly and ground pine?' "'Constance flushed slightly at the mention of Lawrence Armitage. "'A sincere boy and girl friendship had sprung up between them "'that promised later to ripen into perfect love. "'That reminds me,' broke in Jerry bluntly. I have something to tell you, girls. Hal told me. He's my most reliable source of information when it comes to the news of Western High. Laurie is writing an operetta. He's going to call it The Rebellious Princess. And he would like to give a performance of it in the spring. There's to be a big chorus and Professor Harmon is going to pick a cast from the boys and girls of Western and Sanford High Schools. Who is Professor Harmon? asked Constance curiously. Oh, he's the musical director at Western High, answered Jerry offhandedly. He looks after the singing and glee clubs there, just as Miss Walters does at Sanford High. You can sing, Connie, and Laurie knows it. I wouldn't be surprised if you'd get the leading part. I'd be more surprised if I did, laughed Constance, considering that I don't even know Professor Harmon when I see him. Laurie will introduce you to him, I guess, predicted Jerry confidently. Hal said something about a tryout of voices. I can't remember what it was. I'll ask him when I go home. I don't believe I could even sing in a chorus, laughed Marjorie. I haven't a strong voice. You can look pretty, though, and that counts, was Jerry's emphatic consolation. That's more than I can do. 
I can't see myself shine, even in a chorus. I don't sing, I shout, and then I'm always getting off the key, she ended gloomily. Constance and Marjorie giggled at Jerry's funny description of her vocal powers. The stout girl's brief gloom vanished into a broad grin. Two more days and Christmas will be here, exclaimed Marjorie with a joyous little skip, which caused a pile of packages on the floor near her to tumble in all directions. Easy there, warned Jerry. Secretly she was delighted at her friend's lightsome mood. Marjorie had been altogether too serious of late. Privately, she had frequently wished that Mary Raymond had never set foot in Sanford. The early December dusk had fallen when, the last package wrapped, Constance and Jerry said good-bye to Marjorie. "'I'll be over bright and early Christmas morning,' reminded Constance. "'Remember, you were coming to Grey Gables on Christmas night, Marjorie.' Charlie made me promise for you ahead of time. I'd love to have you come too, Jerry. Can't do it. Thank you all the same, but the Maces far and near are going to hold forth at our house, and poor little Jerry will have to stay at home and do the agreeable hostess act, declared Jerry, looking comically rueful. I'll surely be there, Connie. I'll bring my offerings with me. Don't forget that you are due at the Dean's residence on Christmas morning. Bring Charlie with you. After her friends had gone, Marjorie went into the living room to speculate for the hundredth time on the subject of Mary's present. It was a beautiful little neck chain of tiny square gold links, similar to one her captain had given her on her last birthday. Mary had frequently admired it in times past, and for months Marjorie had saved a portion from her allowance with which to buy it. She had a theory that a gift to one's dearest friends should entail self-sacrifice on the part of the giver. Mary's changed attitude toward her had not counted. She was still resolved upon giving her the chain. But how was she to do it? And suppose when she offered it Mary were to refuse it? The entrance of her mother broke in upon her unhappy speculations. "'I'm glad you came, Captain,' she said. "'I've been trying to think how I had best give Mary her presents.' "'Then don't worry about it any longer,' comforted Mrs. Dean. Stepping over to the low chair in which Marjorie sat, she passed her arm about her troubled daughter and drew her close. "'That is a part of my plan.' Wait until Christmas morning and you will know. Tell me now, coaxed Marjorie, snuggling comfortably into the hollow of the protecting arm. That would be strictly against orders, came the laughing response. Have patience, Lieutenant. All right, I will. Sturdily dismissing her curiosity, Marjorie began a detailed account of the afternoon's labour, which lasted until Mr. Dean came rollicking in and engaged Marjorie in a rough-and-tumble romp that left her flushed and laughing. Despite her many errands of goodwill and charity, the next two days dragged interminably. 
On Christmas Eve, Mr. Dean took his family and Mary to the theatre to see a play that had had a long, successful run in New York City the previous season and was now doomed to the road. After the play, they stopped at Sargent's for a late supper. Under Mr. Dean's genial influence, Mary thawed a trifle and even went so far as to address Marjorie several times to the latter's utter amazement. This was in reality the beginning of Mrs. Dean's carefully laid plan. Marjorie guessed as much and wondered hopefully as to what might happen next. Nothing special occurred that evening, however, except that Mary bade her a curt good night. But Marjorie hugged even that short utterance to her heart and went to sleep in a buoyantly hopeful state of mind. She was awakened the next morning by a military tattoo wrapped on her door by energetic fingers. Report to the living room for duty, commanded a purposely gruff voice which she was not slow to recognise. Merry Christmas, General, she called. Lieutenant Dean will report in the living room in about three minutes. Hopping out of bed, she reached for her bathrobe. Then the sound of tapping fingers came to her ears. This time they were on Mary's door. Hastily drawing on stockings and bedroom slippers, she sped from her room and down the stairs. Her father stood stiffly at the foot of the stairway in his most general-like manner. She saluted and came to attention. A moment or two of waiting followed, then Mary appeared at the head of the stairs. She began to descend slowly, but Mr. Dean called out, No lagging in the line, and long obedience to orders served to make her quicken her pace. Two's right, march, ordered Mr. Dean, motioning toward the living room. Wonderingly, the company of two obeyed. Then two pairs of eyes were fastened upon a curious object that stood upright in the middle of the living room table. It was a good-sized flag of pure white. Form ranks, came the order. Two girlish figures lined up side by side. Salute the flag of truce, commanded the wily general. Mary gave an audible gasp of sheer amazement. Marjorie laughed outright. "'Silence in the ranks!' bellowed the stern commandment. "'Pay strict attention to what I am about to say. "'In time of war it sometimes becomes necessary to hoist a flag of truce. "'This means a suspense of hostilities. "'The flag of truce is hoisted in this house for all day. "'It will remain so until twelve o'clock tonight. "'Respect it.' Now break ranks and we'll enjoy our Christmas presents. I hope my army hasn't forgotten its worthy general. Mary? Marjorie's voice trembled. Tears blurred her brown eyes. It's Christmas morning. Will you kiss me? Mary was possessed with a contrary desire to turn and rush upstairs. She felt dimly that to kiss Marjorie was to declare peace against her will but her better nature whispered to her not to ruin the peace of Yuletide. She would respect the flag of truce for one day. Then she could give Marjorie the ring she had brought her before coming to Sanford and laid away for Christmas. Afterwards she would show her that she had softened merely for the time being. 
She returned Marjorie's affectionate kiss rather coolly. Nevertheless, the ice was broken. Five minutes later she found herself running upstairs for her presence for the deans in an almost happy mood, and she joined in the present-giving with a heartiness that was far from forced. Once she had ceased to resist Marjorie's winning advances, she was completely drawn into the divine spirit of the occasion, and she allowed herself to drift once more into the dear channel of bygone friendship. Marjorie fairly bubbled over with exuberant happiness. The unbelievable had come to pass. She and Mary were once more chums. She longed to tell Mary all that was in her heart, but refrained. For today it was better to live on the surface of things. Later there would be plenty of time for confidences. After breakfast she mentioned rather timidly that she expected a call from Constance and little Charlie. Mary received the statement with an apparent docility that brought welcome relief to Marjorie. She was not sure of her chum on this one point. When Constance and Charlie arrived a little after ten o'clock, burdened with gaily decked bundles, Marjorie's fears were set at rest. To be sure, Mary showed no enthusiasm over Constance, but Charlie was a different matter. She had conceived a strange deep love for the quaint little boy, and spared no pains to entertain him. While she was putting Marjorie's beautiful Angora cat, Ruffle, through a series of cunning little tricks, which he performed with sleepy indolence, Marjorie managed to say to Constance, "'I can't come to see you tonight, Connie. I'll explain some day soon. You understand?' Constance nodded wisely. Nothing could have induced her to mar the reconciliation which had evidently taken place. "'Come when you can,' she murmured. Generously leaving her out of the question, she purposely shortened her stay, although Charlie pleaded to remain. "'I'll come again soon,' he assured Mary, as he was being towed off by his sister's determined hand. "'I like you almost as well as Connie.' Marjorie's glorious day was over all too soon. She hovered about Mary with a friendly solicitude that could not be denied. The latter graciously allowed her the privilege, but behind her pleasant manner there was a hint of reserve, which did not dawn upon Marjorie until late that evening. At first she reproached herself for even imagining it, but as bedtime approached the conviction grew that when twelve o'clock came Mary would again resume her hostile attitude. "'It's time taps were sounded.' reminded Mr. Dean, looking up from his book, as the grandfather's clock in the living room pointed half-past eleven. Mrs. Dean sat placidly reading a periodical. "'We'll obey you, General, as soon as we've finished our game.' Marjorie looked up from the backgammon board at which she and Mary were seated. It had always been a favourite game with them, and Marjorie had proposed playing to relieve the curious sensation of apprehension that was gradually settling down upon her. It was five minutes to twelve when she put the board away. Mary had strolled to the living-room door, pausing for an instant, she said, as though reciting a lesson. "'I've had a lovely day. Thank you all for my presence.' Without waiting for replies, she turned and mounted the stairs, 
The sound of a door, closed with certain decision, floated down to the three in the living room. Marjorie walked slowly to the table, and drawing the flag of truce from its improvised standard, handed it to her father. "'I knew it would end like that, General,' she commented sadly. "'I felt it coming all evening. "'Just the same, it was a splendid plan, and I thank you for it.' "'She lingered lovingly to kiss her father and mother good night, "'then marched to her room with a brave face. "'But as she passed the door that had once more been closed against her, she vowed within herself that from this moment forth she would cease to mourn for the friendship of a girl who was so heartless as Mary Raymond. End of chapter 20 Recording by Ashley Jane